Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Prepare to gag, yeah. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Radio Gag on WBAI. Radio Gag is brought to you by Gays Against Guns, and it is your weekly update on how we are working to end the horror that is the American gun violence epidemic. My name is Paul Rowley. I'm one of your regular hosts here. And I am thrilled this week to have Dr. Brett Crutch in the studio with me. Hi, Brett. Hi, thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Um, Brett is a scholar and author, teaches at NYU, and is here to talk to us about his new book. Yes, Dying to be Normal. Dying to be Normal, great. So we are going to talk uh, at length, actually, about that. A super, super interesting text. Um, just recently published, Oxford University Press. Correct. correct? Excellent. Um we are going to quickly uh, go, sell, go through the uh, gun violence prevention news, folks. We have a ton to report on actually this week because a lot is happening. And unlike other weeks, some of this is actually really good news. Um, we're going to start with something that just happened today, actually. New Jersey Governor Philip Murphy today signed an executive order to attempt to curb gun violence in the state. New Jersey now intends to stop doing business with gun manufacturers and retailers that fail to adopt safety policies such as background checks. They will become the first state to take such strong action against the firearms industry. New Jersey alone spends over $750 million on weapons for their own law enforcement and other state agencies. And while New Jersey has some of the country's strictest gun control laws, the governor's executive order seeks to take the gun industry make the gun industry responsible for guns bought in other states so thereby stemming the flow of illegal guns into new jersey additionally the state will now put pressure on financial institutions that do business with jersey um, about their relationships with gun manufacturers and sellers new jersey pays more than one billion dollars in bank fees alone every year and Through this order, they're basically going to the root of the entire firearms economy by investigating how financial institutions that the stakes work with oversees its investments in lending to gun companies. This order will hopefully have impact not only in the state, but will set a standard for other states to follow. One of Gays Against Guns' main main campaign ties directly into this because we are working uh, to let everybody know about Wells Fargo, who are the bank of the NRA. Wells Fargo, more than any other bank, has propped up the gun industry and the NRA with cash. Uh, your APR funds the NRA, as we like to say. Um, in Texas, the man who went on a shooting spree last week in Odessa, it turns out, purchased his gun despite having failed a background check in 2014 because of a serious mental health issue. He purchased a semi-automatic AR-15 through a private sale. For guns sold through licensed firearms dealers. Gun shows, for example, are exempt, and this so-called gun show loophole allows the sale of firearms to unlicensed residents of the same state without a background check. Over 90% of Americans support universal background checks. In terms of their effectiveness, a 2015 study published in the American Journal of Public Health found that a Connecticut law enacted in 1995 requiring handgun buyers to undergo a background check was associated with a 40% decline in gun homicides and a 15% drop in suicides. 
As we've reported here in the past, House Democrats passed HR8, the Bipartisan Background Checks Act of 2019, on the 27th of February this year, which would require all firearm sales to be tracked through licensed dealers. Of course, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, now being dubbed by many in the gun violence prevention movement as Massacre Mitch, has refused to bring the bill to the floor for over six months, claiming that Donald Trump will refuse to sign it. Trump received in excess of $30 million from the NRA for his presidential bid, while McConnell personally has received $1.26 million in NRA contributions. Meanwhile, this week, officials in San Francisco designated the NRA a domestic terrorist organization, a resolution passed unanimously by the city's board supervisors, and it holds that the NRA's activities fall under the Justice Department's definition of terrorist activity. It reads, the NRA musters its considerable wealth and organizational strength to promote gun ownership and incite gun owners to acts of violence. The NRA spreads propaganda that misinforms and aims to deceive the public about the dangers of gun violence. And the leadership promotes extremist positions in defiance of the views of a majority of its members and the public and undermines general welfare. The NRA has been at the centre of high tensions and scandals in recent months as horrific acts of gun violence continue to impact the country. Currently, New York attorney Letitia James is investigating the group's finances over its tax-exempt status as a non-profit group. And then yesterday, uh, the NRA countersued the city of San Francisco because of their decree. Um, gun sales. Uh, giant <laughs> Walmart will soon stop selling handgun ammunition and some semi-automatic rifle rounds. In a statement Tuesday, the retailer said it will end sales of short barrel rifle ammunition, uh, ammunition which is also used in hunting rifles. In addition, Walmart will end handgun ammo sales in all its stores and handgun sales in stores in Alaska, which is the last state in which it still sells them. The company is also, quote, respectfully requesting that gun owners refrain from open carry of firearms in their stores, citing several instances of open carriers coming to stores following the El Paso shooting. Shortly after Walmart's announcement, the supermarket chain Kroger's asked customers to also refrain from open carrying guns in stores and sparked similar actions by CVS, Walgreens and the Wegmans grocery chain. Gun violence prevention advocates have welcomed these first steps but cautioned that much more is to be done, citing that fewer guns in fewer hands leads to fewer gun deaths. And none of the retailers have banned guns in their stores completely, even though legal experts says that this is something they could easily do. As members of Congress return to Washington from recess, uh, gun safety advocates are hoping that gun reform proposals will be under consideration. While previous demands for gun reform have been blocked by the gun lobby and their Capitol Hill allies, many members of Congress have now suggested that the timing may be different now. Many Republican representatives are feeling the heat and believe failure to support reforms could have them out of a job come the next elections. One prominent party donor said last month that it could mean their extinction with critical suburban voters. In addition to expanding background checks as per the House HR8 bill, other key reform proposals would include supporting red flag or ERPO laws, that is extreme risk protection orders. These laws allow courts to temporarily seize legally owned guns from people who pose an imminent threat to themselves or others. Advocates claim these laws would have prevented the Parkland massacre, among others. Currently, 17 states, including New York and the District of Columbia, have red flag laws in place.
Reinstating the assault weapons ban is also central to gun safety demands. The ban was in place from 1994 to 2004. In the decade after it lapsed, deaths from mass shootings that resulted in six or more deaths jumped 374%, even as overall violent crime continued to fall. Congress could also address gun violence through budgetary means. The House recently allocated $50 million for gun violence research in contravention of a 1990s-era budget rider known as the Dickey Amendment, which puts a federal moratorium on funding gun-related research. Many gun violence prevention advocates claim allowing the CDC and other researchers to study gun violence as a health crisis is key to tackling the epidemic head-on. In 2017, a research letter published in the Journal of the American Medical Association found that gun violence was the least researched among the top 30 sources of fatalities for Americans. In a particularly striking example, the authors calculated that gun violence research receives 0.7% of the federal funding that sepsis research does, despite killing roughly the same number of Americans every year. That number is 40,000 Americans dying every year from a gun, Americans shooting each other and Americans shooting themselves. So that is the news this week. Um, great to hear of advances coming from New Jersey. Um, of course, in the news as well this week, um, as we move into our in memoriam, um, our more deaths from gun violence. Our in memoriam, something that we play here every week that uh, pays homage and honors a life that we've lost. This week, our in memoriam is for Bailey Reeves. Saturday evening in northeast Baltimore, Bailey Reeves had gone to a local summer cookout with her older brother Thomas. At 17, Bailey was a rising high school senior who her brother said lived her life to the full. Thomas, 20, left Bailey at the party and went home. An hour later, he got the call to come to Johns Hopkins Hospital. Bailey had been shot in the torso and died. Bailey was an out and proud black trans woman the 18th to be murdered this year alone. Community members gathered on Friday with candles to hold a vigil for Bailey and celebrate her life, also to send a message that enough is enough. Aya Damons of the LGBTQ group Baltimore Safe Haven said Reeves' death reminds us yet again that black trans women are being left behind while others in the LGBTQ movement make progress. We are sick and tired of being sick and tired. Girls are being forced to live in the streets and they are dying. Reeves' murder has brought an outpouring of tributes from LGBTQ people, including TV show Pose stars Dominique Jackson and India Moore. Moore brought a photo of Reeves to the Fashion Media Awards on Thursday, where they were being honoured for Best Magazine Cover of the Year. Moore called to end the epidemic of violence against transgender women in a powerful speech. Just like me, these women dare to exhaust their freedom to exist by being visible. However, instead of being celebrated, they're punished for it. Trans people deserve safety, acknowledgement and respect. Not just when we're on the cover of magazines, but we are in the streets, when we're poor, when we are sex workers, when we can't afford Louis Vuitton or when we can't get access to a hormone shot, and especially when we are dying. So I would definitely, you know, encourage you to look for India Moore's speech online. It is very powerful and yeah, um, 
really highlighting, as we always want to do here also on Radio Gag and with work with Gays Against Guns, uh, this epidemic of violence against trans women. Um, so now we are going to chat with Brett. <laughs> yes. And um, like I said at the start of the show, um, we have Dr. Brett Crutch in the studio, um, a scholar and author who has just recently published his book, Dying to be Normal. Exactly. So welcome again, Brett. Thank you. So for our listeners, can you outline the, the, the concept of the book, Dying to be Normal? Sure. So the book, Dying to be Normal, Gay Martyrs and the Transformation of American Sexual Politics, looks at how LGBTQ activists turned particular people into martyrs as a political strategy to promote greater acceptance. Uh, and so the book looks at cases where that was very successful, people like Harvey Milk or Matthew Shepard. And it also looks at cases that were not nearly as successful, people like uh, F.C. Martinez, who many listeners may not have heard of. Uh, and the uh, book considers the ways in which not only race, but class and gender and, and gender conformity um, shape why certain people became successful as martyrs, but also in particular how religion shapes much of this and who um, uh, the broader public cares about when it comes to queer people. Uh, and so the book makes an argument about how religion shapes uh, who we tend to care about and why. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a fascinating read. It really is. You know, as somebody who grew up in a very religious country in Ireland, as some of our listeners may detect from my wee brogue, <laughs> um, you know, and as a, as a young queer person growing up, you know, under a very oppressive religious regime, I was super interested actually to see the ways that you describe that a, a queer activists, you know, subconsciously or deliberately aligning themselves with religious doctrine or with a religious practice. Right. Fascinating and unexpected in, in many ways, right? I think so. I think the common image is uh, someone like Mike Pence, who is religious and opposed to LGBT political advances and that we're in this constant struggle. Um, uh, but what I wanted to show is that there's another story in terms of how religion has shaped LGBTQ politics. And um, one crucial example or one key example that I highlight in the book is with Matthew Shepard, who becomes the first um, LGBTQ person whose death immediately ignites national outrage, where straight people who had never really been involved in, in gay political issues and who had not really con been concerned about the mass number of uh, AIDS deaths really seemed to care about Matthew Shepard, this college student who was uh, murdered in 1998. And um, when I was doing my research, uh, article after article, activist after activist, made sure to tell anyone who was listening that Matthew Shepard had joined two clubs when he started for college. One was for LGBT students and the other was for Episcopalian students. So we knew right away that he wasn't just gay, he was a committed Christian, a mm -hmm. practicing Protestant, and and that played out in many ways in which how he was memorialized. And I think to many um, heterosexuals, a sort of movable middle of straight society at the end of the 20th century. Um, Shepard, as a good Christian, made him a safe, more relatable gay person. Yes, yeah, so that the idea, you know, when we, so we're talking 1998, you know, LGBTQ people really only started to develop 
you know, as a discernible community in terms of like the like called the heterosexual ma mainstream, I guess in the early late sixties, early seventies, in a way, right? Well, there are many people who say that it's AIDS that really brought people in, that brought uh, sort of attention to gay and bisexual people right. into many straight people's homes. So, yeah. you know, sort of gay liberation starts in the 1970s and there are pride parades and there's a movement for people to come out and tell their families and their friends and their employers. But many people didn't because there were real social and legal backlashes against that. And yeah. then AIDS made it impossible to stay in the closet yeah. for many people. Um, but AIDS as a conduit to a straight American learning about the numbers of gay people came with this dark side, which was that gay people were immediately blamed for the disease that was ripping through LGBT communities. Yeah, exactly. And so in a way, the stories kind of spun kind of in contravention um, of what was emerging in the 70s, which was kind of queer liberation, which was right. not only looking for acceptance, but was kind of challenging the heterosexual norms, right? Absolutely. Like kind of like monogamy, right. you know, one, one partner, one marriage, right. children, right. you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then AIDS kind of knocked all that on its head. That's right. Yeah. So what I was, I, the other point that you make as well in the book is that, that um, these, these, what was happening in the 70s were happening in more kind of isolated Correct. areas. It wasn't like a, a national movement. Yeah, right. yeah, very interesting. The, um, and I guess in a way there's, so there's a, a filtration or a sanitization in a sense that happens that you talk about Harvey Milk in the book as well, you know, right. that how, you know, it, he's held up as, as, a, as a martyr, you know, for many. Yet what we don't often hear about is his his Jewishness, right. his promiscuity, right. you know. So again, we see these patterns, right? Right. So the, I framed the book by looking at the period of 1995 to 2015. So 95 is when medications were introduced that really dramatically changed the AIDS epidemic. Mm -hmm. And 2015 is when same-sex marriage becomes legally possible throughout the country. So I wanted to consider... How did the queer community go from one that was largely associated with death through unbridled sexual frivolity yeah. to a different image of being committed to lifelong monogamous matrimony? And then the book, look, the epilogue looks at the Pulse nightclub massacre. So Harvey Milk, though, was murdered in 1978. But the milk of 1978 is very different than the martyr Harvey Milk of the 1995, early 2000s period. And it's exactly what you said he becomes more palatable to the American mainstream. And one of the ways is that he becomes significantly less Jewish. He um, spoke and wrote frequently about the ways in which his Jewishness and his understanding of Jewish history shaped his activism. Um, he believed that what happened to the Jews of Europe was a good lesson to what could happen to gays in the United States, that things yeah. could get much worse. Um, but much of that has been erased. Uh, he spoke Yiddish conversationally. Um, and then also his ideas. It wasn't just that he was not practicing monogamy. He believed that rebuking monogamy was a potentially good thing to strengthen communities. That if everyone mm -hmm. felt free to... 
um, love more than one person at the same time and not be in sort of possessive pairings, that communities could be strengthened if we could all destigmatize that and be honest about it, that yeah. communities could be strengthened. So he was developing an alternative sexual ethic. Um, but that gets totally erased in this post-AIDS moment where um, gay men who rebuked monogamy were the was the exact community that was blamed for this medical catastrophe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very interesting. Um, we have a couple more minutes. I wanted to talk to you as well about, like, the, the, the last section of your book, the epilogue, really talks about how those practices, those and those strategies, which either, you know, may came, have come from activists or may, you know, also have just been picked up as the narratives that were selected by the mainstream media to support in terms of, of uh, LGBTQ stories, but how these narratives no longer function at all in our society. You know, when we're talking about black trans women getting murdered in the streets, you know, the, 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 the landscape has changed radically, you know. So how do you see those strategies played out these days? And is it still an issue or how has the landscape changed, do you think? I think the landscape has changed in that there is much more talk um, among um, many different groups and within some aspects of mainstream media about um, the ways that race and gender matter in queer politics and that they can never really be separated. Um, I think that that message comes out a lot and we've been talking about an epidemic of violence against transgender women for a few years now mm -hmm. um i don't know on the ground and you might know more to what extent that that's creating change um i think that um the the, the in memoriam that you discussed earlier really speaks to how the legacies of these strategies for the past few decades of really focusing on uh, marriage equality as the pinnacle issue on uh, so many of the images of the LGBT movement being those who are palatable to a, a, a heterosexual Christian audience, um, that we're now living with the legacy of that. And part of that legacy is that there have been far too many people who have been marginalized and excluded and who, who still are not seen as fully human, as fully American. And that's going to take time, but we don't have time. Yeah. Well, not, not while people are right. getting killed in the streets. So thank you so much for coming in. Thank and you for having me. Of course. So your book is available from all reputable booksellers. Exactly. It okay, is. Wonderful. Yes. And congratulations. I mean, what an achievement. And thank an accomplishment. you. Wonderful. I appreciate it. Great, folks. So we are going to just quickly give you a little bit, a few bits more information about Gays Against Guns. Our next meeting is this coming Thursday in the LGBTQ Center. Um, that's on 13th Street in Manhattan. And I'd also really like to encourage our listeners to become a WBAI buddy in the name of our radio show. Um, our weekly radio show is entirely volunteer run or our writing and our research and all of that carry on um, is us doing this as volunteers. And what we can't do as a group is help support BAI, who give us this wonderful opportunity of being on air, um, which is such a blessing. Um, a BAI buddy is somebody who basically uh, commits to subscribing a small, small amount of money as much as you can afford once a month 
um, and basically you become a BAI buddy in the name of Radio Gag. And it's your way of showing support uh, for the work that we do here as we try and end the gun violence epidemic. So um, you can find all that information on the WBAI website. So we are about out of time, folks. Um, I just wanted to thank you all for listening in. As always, you can find out more about us at Um, You can check out this show and all our other shows on WBAI or on any major podcast platform. And we are going to round things out, as we always do, with our singing quartet, Sing Out Louise. So pitiful the NRA, a cult of guns and greed, and Congress only blocks the way and watches while we bleed. America, America, 100 die each day in suicide and homicide and all we do is pray so pitiful the kkk still marching in their sheets while michael brown and freddie gray get murdered in the streets america America, you just can't get it right. Why can't we see equality for black and brown and white? So pitiful, the toxic Trump, you lie with every word. You Russian whore, you stupid chump. Your cabinet is absurd.